At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. A few weeks ago, I had asked Mark what I need to do to uh, avoid wearing a mask here in the worship service. And he said I either had to preach or to sing. And Greg said he really liked hearing me preach, so uh, that kind of settled it, right? Just have four more days. I guess we can breathe a sigh of relief and uh, get ready to put this year in the record books. It really has been a record, uh, thinking of all the things that we've had to put up with. It's been interesting uh, to think that earlier this year, uh, we also set a record, a real record, for the number of named hurricanes to hit the United States. Remember that? Uh, 30 in all. So we went all the way through the English alphabet, ran out of letters, and then had to borrow some from the Greek alphabet. And it just seemed like they came on and on and on and wouldn't quit. Well, the hurricanes are kind of uh, emblematic of the year that we've had. And uh, perhaps there's some of the hurricanes that you encountered that uh, you might have forgotten about, but they were part of that list, maybe even a, beyond, a little bit beyond that list. Now, do you remember the hurricane inconvenience when it hit? I remember where I was when that hit. It was like I was just kind of going along in my day-to-day. It seemed like things were fairly normal. And then all of a sudden, the waves and the wind came in crashing. And instead of working in an office with coworkers or teaching in a classroom with actual students, uh, or seeing patients in your office, uh, everything went online. And just all of a sudden, there's the inconvenience of having to uh, adjust schedules and the way that you do things and set up shop at home while kids are also at home uh, underfoot and competing for bandwidth. Uh, so lots and lots of inconvenience. It's one of the hurricanes that we face this year. And a lot of you will also call to mind the hurricane insecurity, right, when it hit. Um, weren't really planning on it. In fact, a year ago, that uh, supposedly secure employment that you had, that you were counting on to be able to establish yourself in the community, uh, to raise a family, all of a sudden, no more. A lot of people had to deal with that insecurity of wondering how they're going to put food on the table or to uh, provide uh, for their family. But insecurity hit us hard, and um, it's still kind of with us, the, the after effects of that. And then there are still other hurricanes. The, everybody, I suppose, has had to deal with the hurricane separation. Separation has been really hard. Um, you think of all the birthdays and anniversaries and graduations, and now Christmas that has gone online to a certain extent. Uh, you've had to... Uh, go through these important times of life, and instead of having the ones that you love uh, close by to be able to give a hug to, uh, there's an empty seat there at the table. Or you just wave on the screen and hope that that communicates the, the sentiments that you feel. Separation has been hard. And some people have been hit in the very epicenter of separation. Spend time in an intensive care unit. Or maybe at a graveside, thinking of somebody that you've lost. There have been various 
hurricanes that we have faced this year, and there's probably many more that have been uh, personal storms, people that have had to deal with things that probably most of the rest of us don't even know. But in the midst of these different storms and the questioning that happens, um, sometimes we don't have answers to uh, satisfy us, why something happened, how long it's going to last, exactly how we can manage. But Jesus can offer us, and does offer us, a new perspective, a new perspective. And that's what I would like to focus on this morning. Uh, I think that the gospel accounts offer us a tremendous uh, uh, perspective to help us in the midst of either the storms like we've have experienced this past year or the storms which will surely come in the coming months, years, or at some point during our life. Um, thinking particularly of a passage in Luke chapter 24, if you want to open your Bible already, Luke chapter 24, it's an interesting time for the disciples when you think about it. At this point in their time with Jesus, uh, things were going pretty good, right? They uh, had been with Jesus for the better part of three years already. Uh, they had heard a lot of the teachings. They had seen a lot of the miracles. Uh, they were thinking, wow, this couldn't be better. Uh, seeing how Jesus was able to confront the people that needed to be confronted and draw the, the downtrodden and others that needed help. And here they were, they were on the, the cusp of going into Jerusalem, and I'm sure that the expectations for the disciples were just sky high. They're thinking, here in just a few days, Jesus is going to put everything in place. He's going to put the Roman authorities in their place. He's going to confront the Jewish religious leaders and put them in their place and usher in God's kingdom. But in just a few days the waves start crashing in, and the world is turned topsy-turvy. First, one of Jesus' own disciples betrays him. There's a, a sham trial that Jesus is subjected to. And then to top it off, Jesus is put onto a cross to die a shameful death. And the disciples were probably thinking, where in the world did this come from? We didn't see this coming. And then to make matters worse, uh, just a few days after Jesus had died, the disciples started hearing the reports of some of the others that Jesus had been seen, right? There were these appearances, kind of random and mysterious. You know, what's going on here? Are they losing their grip on reality? And I'm sure there were some of them thinking, when is this nightmare going to be over? How in the world can we get through this difficult storm? But Jesus steps into the turbulent waters that they were experiencing at that time, and he offers them perspective. And we see that perspective here in chapter 24 of Luke, and particularly in verses 46 and 47. But before we get to these verses, we need to set the stage just a little bit. So still in Luke 24, Back up just a few verses to verse 39. In verses 39 through 43, we see Jesus offering a series of simple but convincing proofs that he really was risen from the dead. Touch my hands, 
I'm eating something before you. It wasn't just a, a ghost figure that they were seeing, but an actual bodily resurrection. And then in verses 44 and 45, Jesus prepares them to hear these important truths of 46 and 47. And he does several things here, which I find fascinating. In verse 44 of chapter 24 of Luke, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is pointing to two authoritative sources of information to help bring the focus of the disciples back where it needed to be. The first source of information was his own teaching. He had spent three years or several years with the disciples, and he could remind them of things that he had already said in the past. I'm sure there were some things like uh, the kingdom of God will be established. It may not look like the great Roman authority, Roman empire, but it may start like a simple mustard seed and then grow to great dimensions. But it will be established. And he could remind the disciples at the same time of his own role as the Messiah. Jesus didn't shy away from that identification. But the Messiah, as Jesus had told them, the Messiah would have to suffer and even die. So as the disciples here in Luke 24 are are facing these, these chaotic times and wondering what's going on, Jesus was simply reminding them of the things that he had already taught. And then the second source of information is mentioned here in this verse. He says, the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it had to be fulfilled. This triple expression here is basically a summary statement of the entire Old Testament. So from cover to cover, you see this teaching. It reminds me of the teacher in the classroom that, you know, the next to the last week of the semester uh, gets up before the class and says, class, I want you to get out your notebook. There's going to be a final exam, and there are three things that are going to be on the exam. And there's always some student sitting in the back row that's thinking, why in the world did she not give us this on the first week, right? But if the teacher is alert and hears that comment and say, well, actually, we've covered this the entire semester. It's been our class discussion from the beginning. And it's also been a part of your textbook readings from the beginning. You just were not prepared to comprehend it until now. So Jesus is reminding the disciples of things which he has already taught and which they've already been exposed to. But he does the teacher one better, because he does something I bet every teacher would love to be able to do. In verse 45, it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus, in this miraculous way, blew away the brain fog. He he removed the obstacles, the distractions that they were facing. He opened their minds because it was too important. What he was getting ready to tell them was too important for them not to comprehend So it still begs the question, what is it that Jesus wanted to transmit to his disciples? What were these three foundational principles that he wanted to communicate to his disciples? Three landmarks, as they were, three, uh, you can think 
lighthouse beacons to help guide their way as they're navigating these turbulent waters. In verse 46, we see the first two of these landmarks. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. Thus it is written. These landmarks are identified, if you're studying this text, uh, there's actually three key verbs that follow this phrase, thus it is written. It's basically Luke saying, or Jesus saying, these things have to happen. God has ordained that this will happen, regardless of the circumstances. The three things, these three verbs, two of them are here in this, this verse. First, that Christ would suffer, and second, that he would rise again from the dead. The idea of Christ's suffering, of course, includes his death. Jesus' death was something that he had taught about, as we've already mentioned, but it's possible that he also looked at different verses, references in the Old Testament, to help ground this thought even more in the minds of the disciples. You can think of like a passage like Psalm 22 that states this very clearly. A messianic psalm which says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. Before my clothing, they cast lots. Very specific. Messiah will have to suffer. The resurrection, rising from the dead also. Jesus had lots of scriptures that he could have turned to. Perhaps one of them was in Psalm 16. Another messianic psalm, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So lots and lots of references that Jesus could have brought to the disciples' attention at this time. But together, these two events, these uh, two sides of one coin, uh, as it were, uh, they are together the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul talks about the gospel, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I presented to you what was of first importance that Jesus, that the Messiah would have to die according to the Scriptures and that he would rise again also according to the Scriptures. So these two events are the essence of the gospel. Sometimes we we make it a little bit more complicated. We add other elements to that. But basically that is the gospel in and of itself. So Jesus is pointing to the gospel message for his disciples and reminding them, that to remain grounded, they have to keep that in mind. Now, let's take it by parts uh, here and look, think, first of all, about Jesus' death on the cross. You might be thinking, well, how, how is it that somebody's death could actually be good news? Well, maybe some people have the experience of knowing somebody that was in a hospital room awaiting a donor or a transplant of a heart, or a lung, or a, uh, a liver, or something like that. 
In that case, when you hear of the death, the demise of somebody, it's actually very good news for the person that's waiting for that organ. But what we get from Jesus is not a mere extension of our life expectancy, but it's uh, eternal life in itself. He gives us the possibility of having a relationship with God and life everlasting. What Jesus gives to us is not the result of some mere accident that may happen on a superhighway. But Jesus gives to us his life voluntarily. He offers to us, out of his love, out of his concern for us, salvation in a way that we could never earn. So Jesus is not merely a good role model who lived an exemplary life. He's not merely a great teacher who was able to gather the crowds. The key to understanding Jesus is found, first of all, in his death. Beck and I had the opportunity this year um, to watch the series, The Good Place. I'm not sure how many people have watched that. Um, Ted Danson, uh, there's four primary actor, actors, and their situation is that they're kind of caught in a, a holding pattern between uh, heaven and hell. And they're all trying different efforts to get into the good place, heaven, right? And so you, you see about this. It's, it's actually, it's a well-written show. Um, I would say it's, it's pretty funny uh, for the most part. Uh, it's actually fairly family-friendly also. And it's horrible theology. Um, the name of Jesus does come up a few times, but never in a sense of being somebody that actually could help somebody escape hell or go into heaven. Jesus is just held up as uh, a good role model, a good teacher, sort of like the Buddha or sort of like some great philosopher, and that's about the extent of it. But it's, you know, it's Hollywood, so I hope... People are not going to Hollywood for their spiritual orientation, but we have, since we have a better source of orientation here in God's Word. So the gospel includes, as the first part, the first element in the, uh, the message itself, Jesus' death, the focus on Jesus' death on our behalf. But it also includes this, this other side of the coin that cannot be separated from the first, and that's the fact that he has risen from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, resurrection does sound like good news, right? I think nearly everybody would like to think that there is life after this life. We would hope for that, even though for a lot of people it's a, it's a difficult concept. Maybe because of their orientation, things that they've heard, uh, they may hope for this life everlasting, but maintain a sort of agnosticism. After all, things are basically nature, they may say. Uh, the natural world is what there is, and uh, you don't get beyond that. So if an organic creature uh, gets to a point where it dies, it begins to decompose, and eventually will return back to nature. What the science books tell us and what we observe at the same time. So it's hard to believe, hard to put faith in something that you, you can't see or can't measure. And the resurrection would be a part of this. But I, I would challenge you to think this morning, if we can put faith 
in the eyewitness accounts of people that saw Jesus risen from the dead. Not just the group of disciples that were assembled here in Luke 24, but at other occasions, over these 40 days, uh, various locations, uh, various situations, if we were to put faith in that and say that there really was a person that lived after death in a bodily sense, if you were to accept that as an historical occurrence, your worldview would almost have to change. There's a lot of implications to that. First of all, you would have to admit that there is some sort of supernatural, something that Christians would probably refer to as a spiritual realm. Even though we can't really measure it, we don't see it. It's something that exists. So there's something supernatural that goes on with a resurrection. Secondly, this supernatural has a way of intersecting, invading our world so that special things occur. As Christians, we would say God or God's angels can cause miracles to occur or fortuitous circumstances, blessings to occur. So this supernatural invades the natural. Third thing that you could conclude is that uh, besides just invading and intersecting with the natural world, uh, that there's a force within nature that is even greater than our greatest challenge, which is death itself. So the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead would lead us to conclude that there is something invisible, some supernatural force that would allow people to live after death. And it leads us to the greatest conclusion, the greatest implication of all, which is that if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, there's hope for others. There's hope for other people to have that same experience. I like the way that John MacArthur states this because I, th- I think that he, he puts it strongly and very accurately. He says, the whole of Christianity is built on the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. If there is no resurrection, God is Satan, and the Bible is full of lies. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation, no forgiveness, no hope, no heaven. You cannot pull the resurrection out of the structure of Christianity without it collapsing completely. And that's true. And that's true. The resurrection is central to the Christian life. When you think about the disciples at this time, uh, I'm sure there were lots of confusion. They had been uh, shaken to the core by the thought and by the sight of Jesus' death. They were frightened by Jesus' resurrection, and they had questions, thousands of questions as a result. They were in danger of collapsing. But Jesus reminds them that actually his death, his resurrection, formed part of this gospel message, which is actually the foundation for everything else, for the kingdom that God will will introduce into the world and for their own lives. So as they're navigating life's storms, trying to uh, confront or to get through the different challenges that they had then and would have in the future, Jesus is reminding them that the gospel message has to be forefront in their minds. The message obviously has great implications for those who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. But I would encourage all of you to think that it also has great implications for those of us who have taken that step. 
for those of us who are already named the name of Christ. The gospel is not merely a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can keep in our back pocket and use at such time that we might need it. But it should have implications for our day-to-day life now. We can think of the person that has considerable inconvenience, right? There's going through the day-to-day and putting up with masks and Zoom meetings and all sorts of virtual uh, encounters of one sort or another and thinking, how in the world can I even get through this day or this week? How can I continue to, con- to exist in this, this manner? And the gospel is a reminder to us that God's power is available. If the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for our salvation, for our future resurrection, it's available on a day-to-day basis. God is concerned with our day-to-day circumstances. You can think about the um, insecurities that people may, may sense, perhaps a sense of failure or shame that uh, you weren't able to keep a job, you were no longer considered essential, or perhaps you've had to depend on uh, government assistance of some sort to be able to just pay basic bills. There may be the sense that God has abandoned me. And yet, the gospel reminds us that the love of God is present. God offered his very own son to die on our behalf. How much more he will give us what we need to get through each day. God never has, has never turned his back on us. God will always help us. And we can think about the sovereignty of God as well. The sovereignty of God that all of this has been predicted. All of this has been planned from eternity past. God has put into motion this great cosmic plan, which includes the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So when we think about the separation that we may experience now, as difficult as it may be, we shouldn't fall Temptation of thinking that maybe God forgot. Maybe something has escaped his care. But God is always working things out for our best. Even if we don't understand it, he's working on our behalf. So the gospel message is a message for all people to give us this orientation, to provide a direction, uh, a, a, a clarion call so that we can proceed with security, with calmness into the future. But it's two of the three landmarks that I mentioned at the beginning. The third and the final landmark is found here in verse 47 of Luke chapter 24. So in verse 47, we transition in this verse from looking at past events to looking at future events. We transition also from the things that God has done on our behalf and then begin to look at the things that we will do on behalf of God. But at the same time, keep in mind that these are things which are written in the Scriptures and which Jesus says has to happen. Verse 47 reads, And that repentance, it is written, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, there are several terms in here that I want to explore in a little bit more detail, but the important verb which actually 
uh, provides the direction in this verse is the verb proclaimed. And we'll get there in just a minute. But first I want to look at this word repent, repentance. Repentance in, in kind of a classical sense, uh, people think of penance. Uh, penance is you know, some unusual or perhaps uncomfortable act that you have to do uh, to show contrition for your sins. Um, so lots and lots of examples, uh, but people can think of, oh, I've got to really show God or somebody else that I'm sorry that I did such a thing. Well, the biblical idea of repentance is actually it's a little different than that. Uh, it's a changing of the mind. If you look at the term, it's, it's literally change your mind with regard to something. So you think, well, change your mind with regard to what? With regard to your sin? Your sin is not something that you want to continue pursuing, but something that you want to give up. Something uh, that brings guilt or shame that you want to turn away from. Perhaps you've allowed something to become an idol, uh, a false god in your life. So changing your mind about that sin means that that's not what I want. That's not good. I need to do what's right. Changing your mind also with regard to God himself. You need to acknowledge God exists, God is good, and I need God's mercy to overcome the effects of sin. So change your mind with respect to sin, also with respect to God, and change your mind with respect to your own effort. Um, a lot of people would think that I can overcome. If I just try a little harder, maybe with the help of some friends, uh, I can get through this, and I can make myself agreeable to God. Changing your mind with respect to your own efforts would say, I'm not able. I need God's grace. I need his help. So biblical repentance includes this changing of an attitude, changing of a mind with respect to sin. Second term that we see here is the, the term forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. And I personally think that if Jesus had spent hours and hours with his disciples. He probably went into lots of other ideas, the blessings that come to those who believe in him for salvation. So you can think of forgiveness, of salvation itself, reconciliation, redemption, becoming a new creature in Christ, a new birth, and all sorts of ideas and concepts that are blessings for the believer. But Jesus focuses on forgiveness here, and forgiveness is huge. It's, it's one of the biggies, maybe. So forgiveness of sins basically communicates that no matter how deep your sin, no matter how dark your past, the slate can be wiped clean. That's a tremendous message. Tremendous message. Focusing on forgiveness of sins. I came across a a study recently um, in Psychology Today talking about the effects of guilt. I found it fascinating. This author said that guilt is like a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off, making it hard to concentrate. Guilt is also something that significantly lowers your productivity your efficiency and creativity. Guilt can make you self-punish. 
fall prey to an addiction or some other self-destructive behavior. Guilt makes you avoid or try to avoid the person that you've wronged. And I would add, including God himself. Guilt can also make you resentful. And I found this last one really interesting. Guilt literally makes you feel heavier and belabored. So I thought, well, okay, 2021, I, I want to lose some weight. Maybe the first thing I need to do is remove burden of guilt, right? Well, I think forgiveness is a huge blessing, and everyone should want to remove this type of guilt in their life. Forgiveness is possible in Jesus. But then we get to this idea of proclamation. Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. Proclaimed is uh, maybe self-explanatory. Uh, you can think of a herald uh, that is making, issuing a, a, an official public proclamation. Uh, but I think that it's more general than that. It's, it's the announcement of uh, good news or some sort of, of um, uh, you know, notice that, that something has happened. And uh, this is going to happen in all the nations. So Christians, when they think about being a proclaimer, an ambassador, if you will, uh, on behalf of the sending authority, God, uh, we have this opportunity, and I would say really a privilege, to extend to others the same forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced. Uh, if you uh, know what it is to be forgiven, you can tell others where they can find the forgiveness. It's like the blind man who was formerly blind and began to see because of Jesus' actions. Well, he could tell other blind men where they could also gain their sight. So we have that opportunity as Christians to proclaim what's happened in our own lives and to announce to others where they can find forgiveness and everything else. It's interesting, though, that when Jesus talks about the proclamation, it's something that's guaranteed. I know that sometimes when we think about this, especially hearing a missions pastor talk about it, you may be feeling a little bit uncomfortable thinking, well, he's getting ready to issue a challenge here in a minute, and he's going to ask for volunteers to stand up and go to the mission field and do this or that. But I take some comfort in knowing that this is just an indicative verb, that this will happen. These are things that God has predicted and I suppose there's an implicit invitation in here. But really, we can rest assured that with or without our participation, God is going to bring about the proclamation. I would like to be part of the group that's cooperating with God and helping to further that end. But I know that sometimes I don't cooperate fully. But we can rest assured that this proclamation is going to happen. It's going to happen. So the question, I guess, for us is whether or not we will be good ambassadors helping out. I see the same thing, the same idea almost in verse 48. Uh, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. He's not saying you will be. He's not saying that you will witness, although we can see that maybe in the book of Acts. But he's saying that you are, for better or for worse, you are witnesses. 
So the things that you say, the life that you live, it, 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 it demonstrates, it transpires uh, some sort of a witness. And we can hope, we can pray that God would make that witness one which is glorifying to his name. One which helps people understand what he has done, what true grace means, and what the gospel has meant in our life. And that through that, other people could come to repentance for forgiveness. The, uh, probably the most difficult term in this phrase, in this, this verse, uh, for the original disciples was probably the, this phrase, all the nations. Now, you and I probably don't have much difficulty with that. We're, we're part of all the nations, at least from the perspective of, of a first century Jew. Um, but for them, Jewish disciples gathered in a small corner of uh, eastern Mediterranean world, uh, and they're hearing Jesus talk about all these different things. They're thinking, okay, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you, I'm following you. And then this idea of all the nations comes across. And they're probably thinking, what, what in the world? Uh, how are we supposed to do this? Uh, well, part of the answer would be found in verse 49. We won't get that far this morning, but Jesus talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, that you have to wait for the Holy Spirit to show up for this to actually happen. It's, it's beyond your abilities. But we could also think about some of the verses that Jesus probably referred to with, uh, to assure the disciples that it wasn't just Jews that God had in mind for salvation. You can think about key verses like uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, uh, one of the most important verses really in the whole Old Testament. Abraham hearing his call and God concluding by saying, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But even before the Jews existed, God had this worldwide plan in mind. And then the Jews specifically, and uh, actually the Messiah here, the Messianic passage in Isaiah 49, uh, God says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, Israel, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. Pretty clear. God had this idea of reaching the entire world. And Jesus is just reminding the disciples that that's always been the plan. So we have proclamation, which takes place to lead to repentance, which leads to forgiveness for all people in the world. And Jesus is saying that this is a guiding principle. Just as the gospel message itself are these landmarks, these beacons, these guiding beacons that we can look to in the past, we can also look to the distant horizon and know that God is conducting humanity in a certain direction so that the proclamation of the message will help. And we can rest assured that if we keep these things in mind, we will have the correct perspective over the events and circumstances of 2021. I'm reminded of a story which perhaps you've heard, but it's um, of the Green Bay Packers. In 1960, they were competing in the championship game, and they lost. So at the beginning of the next training camp, Coach Vince Lombardi gathered his, his players in the locker room, and he, and he said, gentlemen, this 
is a football. And starting with that simple object lesson, he passed on to them a, a vision for what they could accomplish if they would remember the basics. And accomplished they did. They went on and won the championship that following year and in four of the following six seasons as well. But men and women, when we think about our calling, we have to keep in mind that this is the gospel. What God has done on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of doing things for God, but of depending on what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in rising from the dead that we call ourselves Christians. And we have this vision before us to be able to carry that message to other peoples, to the people that we know and many others that we don't. And that God will do this. God will empower us. God will equip us. And God will bless us as we do these things. This is the gospel. We live in a a world of hurt. It's all around us. And I'm sure that we're tempted many times to think that um, it's, there's no hope. Uh, there's no solution. But we shouldn't give up. We should recall the gospel message and this fact that uh, we have this opportunity to serve as witnesses for Jesus. Help get us through these tough times. What Jesus is offering here is not so much a change of circumstances as it is a change of perspective. And with his perspective, we can not only get through these tough times, but also offer a message of hope to the people who are hurting all around us. My hope and my prayer for you during the next four days and also the next year and afterwards is that you could do that. So please God by remembering the principles found in this passage. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the clarity in your word, the simplicity of the gospel itself, and Jesus' powerful instructions for us that we have a message that we can proclaim. And Father, we're faced day to day with uh, challenging circumstances, ones not of our own choosing, and yet we ask for your power to see us through for your honor and glory. And we ask for your continual reminder of these foundational principles. We ask this for your honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.